will come before the Lord to hear His Word and to, to learn from Him, to apply what He has to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Father, we pray that you would humble us before you now, Father, that we would be humble before you and that you would not oppose us. God, that you would give us grace, grace that we do not earn, that we don't deserve, Lord, grace that all all points to your goodness, your glory, your love for us. Father, thank you for bringing us here to this place. We pray that you would change us for hearing and studying your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you look for in pastors? How do you tell whether you're looking at a a good pastor or not such a good pastor? And maybe a bigger question is, is how do you evaluate a church? How do you know whether you're going to a good church or not so good church? You know, many are not sure what that looks like. It kind of comes down to the, the feeling you get when you're there or the vibe that is there. Uh, maybe it's the programs that are present at a church. You know, how often can I drop my kids off? <laughs> um, is there something for my wife to do? Is there something for my husband to do? besides be at home. There are a lot of different factors that people take into account for looking for a church, and many of them aren't really part of what God says a church should be about, and and that's uh, true also of pastors. What do we look for in pastors as you evaluate them and you evaluate a church? What does a good pastor look like? Um, Is it the feeling or the vibe that you get? Is is it whether he or they know your name when they see you? what is it that makes a good pastor? And then what is your responsibility when you've found a church with good pastors? Those are the questions that are answered in our text this morning. But we want to make sure we don't isolate this passage, this paragraph, and just rip it out of First Peter and say, okay, for 21st century Prescott Valley, what does this look like here at Canyon? We need to remember the context, and the context stems out of everything that Peter has written in this letter. But really succinctly summarized in chapter 4, verse 19. We, we, we memorized that together last week, right? That was part of the application, um, memorizing those verses. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Um, memorizing that truth and, and just chewing on it in our minds and in our hearts, living our lives for God's glory. It's His glory for us to submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, and then to grow in holiness. And even when we're suffering, especially when we're suffering, continuing and even increasing the urgency of doing that. 
We share this hope that we have with others, and we live out our love in truth, enduring whatever happens, whatever comes along. There's been so much in First Peter. But in light of holiness and love and persecution and suffering and all of these big things that we've been looking at, how do we look for pastors that will help us toward those goals that God has for us, help us through suffering, help us through persecution so that we can keep Jesus in front of us? There are a lot of ideas about how to evaluate pastors out there, you know. Are, are they engaging? Are they vision casting? Are they, are they preaching or counseling? Is there, is there leadership? Is there motivation but not control? Is, you know, everything's their responsibility, and so how are they doing, doing everything? If we're after a bigger church, if we're after growing numbers, or after, if we're going for a certain kind of church, well, we're going to expect to see certain kinds of things that will align with those kind of categories of, of categories that people places, place churches into. Churches are divided up into, well, that's a, that's a lively church over there. They like to have a lot of fun. They're lively. That's a preaching church over there. Um, you know, that's a, that's a student-focused church. They do a lot of things with students, or um, that's a small group church. There's a traditional church, or families-focused, or missions-focused, or the alternative church, right? Those are the edgy ones that meet in bars or, uh, you know, strange places. <laughs> the <laughs> the, the community-focused church. So many different categories of what churches are. And so if you're in a church that's categorized in one of those ways, the activities, the emphases, um, a lot of the energies are going to be directed towards those resources, those areas, not towards others. And I'm not saying that any of those categories are wrong, those, those emphases are wrong, but they can become a, a big imbalance for a church when everything is, is laid aside to be that category. So a major part of evaluating pastors in churches is maybe how they're doing within their category, right? Um, you've got a traditional church there, pastor. Why are you guys trying to uh, start small groups? <laughs> you know, uh, you're a missions-focused church. Why would you talk about politics? Anything that has anything to do with politics, you shouldn't do that when a missions category church, right? You're supposed to be bringing in people, engaging them. You're supposed to be funny and entertaining. Why would you bring up hell or sin or judgment, right? But after all that we've read and studied in First Peter, Hopefully, we have a different understanding of what the church is supposed to be about, what we are supposed to be about out in the world and when we come together. And it's not trying to fit a specific mold or category or type of church. In fact, we've been learning that as our life as a Christian is not going to be necessarily easy, it probably won't be. But even though we had been straying like sheep, chapter 2 verse 25 says, we have turned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We have come to Jesus. When we did that, we became a new kind of person. We became part of a new kind of people group, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And we live now for His purposes of love and holiness and truth. And in fact, you can think of it that way. Holiness is where love and truth meet together and are lived out, practiced in life. So rather than looking for pastors that might help us be a better lively church or um, bringing people in by the droves or being continue, uh, entertaining or whatever kind of category we're looking for, what should we actually be looking for in pastors? And then what do we do about it if we find them? 
Is the church that I'm going to following God's idea for the church or man's ideas? Do I see God's ideas in front and center? What does that look like? Well, Peter answers that in three parts. What do we need, all need to be doing in church? And the first part, there are three parts to this answer. The first part is that the pastors need to pastor, verses 1 through 4. <laughs> pastors need to pastor. Now, as we said, there are a lot of ideas about what that looks like, uh, but many of the requirements that people look for are not actually found in Scripture. There are lots of ideas about what it looks like for a group of people to lead a group of people um, that are not present in the Bible. They can look any number of ways, really. I mean, if you look at business executives and um, military leaders, government managers, if that's a thing, government managers, but, you know, business executives, military leaders, even nonprofit directors, they all look for certain traits and certain qualities and what will help further their outcomes, their desired outcomes. But pastors, elders, are God's idea of how He wants His people led, and so He gets to tell us what it should look like, right? By the way, we're going to look at, um, as we're talking about this, we're looking at pastors and elders. We're using those terms interchangeably. There are three words in the Greek that describe pastors, elders, um, and overseers, three words that, that are used. Uh, poimen is generally translated pastor or shepherd. Uh, presbyteros is generally translated elder. And episkopos is generally translated overseer or bishop. And now many have divided those up into different offices. They see pastors as something separate from elders, and both of those are different from bishops or overseers. And some denominations have even derived their names from those Greek words, the Presbyterian church from Presbyteros, the Episcopalian church from the Episcopos. But really, all three terms are interchangeable in the New Testament. We see that here in 1 Peter 5. All three of those words are used here, and they're used as synonyms for the same person, the same people, really. Verse 1, fellow elder is that word Presbyteros. Verse 2, shepherd the flock is poimen pastor. And verse 2 is exercising oversight. That's the verb for overseer, episkopos. So, they're all here in these verses as synonyms. And the same thing happens in in Acts chapter 20 when Paul meets the Ephesian elders. We won't turn there, but the Bible uses these interchangeably, and then so do we. Pastors are elders, are bishops, are overseers, are shepherds. But the terms are always plural in the New Testament, unless someone is speaking of a, of a particular person. And so, we follow that instruction and that example from the New Testament of, of a plurality of pastors, a plurality of elders in the church, not just one. And so, what is it that Peter has to say to these men then? Well, first of all, who does he think he is? <laughs> Trying to tell pastors of a church what to do and to be. Why, why does he get to, to tell us? Well, he reminds them humbly in verse 1 of who he says. And he doesn't say based on my authority as the great Peter, uh, the chief of the apostles, right? I was, I was Jesus' closest friend and apostle. Well, he was on this, you need to listen to what I have to say. No, that's not what he does at all. Uh, instead, he simply calls himself a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. On the basis of those three parts to his credentials, he exhorted the elders 
to do what they're supposed to do. Exhort is the word for calling alongside, the parakaleo. That's one of the words for the Holy Spirit, the one who calls us alongside and encourages us to, to do the ministry that He has for us. Rather than order them as an apostle, then He encourages them as one of them to do what God has called them to do. And he, he knows what He's calling them to. He knows it's not a simple task. He knows it will be a lot of work, and, and it's a very serious job, but it's also a job with a great blessing. And so He's calling them to this. But did you notice that for Peter, there's a past, a present, and a future aspect to his credentials? In verse 1 here, in the past, he was personally witnessed Christ's sufferings. In the present, he's a fellow elder. He's also a koinonia fellowship partner, partaker of the glory that is to be revealed in the future. So past, present, and future, Peter thinks of himself all in relation to Jesus. All of his credentials are Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Brother and sister, that's how we should view ourselves, whether we're pastors or not. In the past, present, and future, how, who am I according to Christ? Anything that I am is in Christ, from Christ, and for Christ. Past, present, and future, anything that has happened, is happening, or will happening, is all for and from my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's a much better way to think about myself and about life and what's happening than than the normal way of life. Man, I don't know what's going on. Life is out of control and crazy, and <laughs> I, I wish I knew what was happening. No, we know the one who knows what's happening and why it's happening. And so everything that we think about ourselves should be in relation to past, present, and future, what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. So Peter says, I'm working as an elder like you, and I want you to be faithful in that work. And I'm absolutely certain of this work that it's difficult and challenging, and it includes suffering and persecution because that includes all of us, right? We, we're all going to be suffering. We're all going to be persecuted for Christ. Um, but pastors also were going to suffer the same things. But the reason that I know that, Peter says, is because I saw Jesus' own sufferings, and He said it was going to come for us as well. But I'm also another blessed one like you that gets to partake in the glory that's coming what a blessing that we have to have hope that we don't deserve to, to go there. We, we don't earn going to His glory, but I'm going to be there when this temporary suffering is over with you. We're, we're going to be there together when the glory is revealed. It's Peter's way of saying, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, right? So what is it then that he's exhorting them, calling alongside them to accomplish? And then what's our responsibility? This is this is why it's going to be important, because we need to know what we're, how to respond to this. But the exhortation that Peter gives is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, the word shepherd is an imperative command here. So, even though Peter was gently exhorting them and encouraging to this task, this command here to shepherd is not an option. Grammatically, it's emphatic and it's clear. There's not really any other way to translate this verse. I mean, most of your translations will have these words unless you've got a really free um, translation interpretation. Uh, shepherd the flock, Peter says. And he didn't make this up. Peter didn't come up with this himself, did he? This is what Jesus told him. Remember in John chapter 21, after Jesus had risen from the grave and he meets Peter and he says to Peter, feed my lambs of John 21, verse 15. Verse 16 is tend my sheep. And the word tend is this word shepherd. And then he says to him again, feed my sheep in verse 17. 
So as Jesus was speaking to Peter and restoring him in ministry and in fellowship, his focus is on the feeding of his sheep, which sandwiches the more general term of shepherding them and and caring for them as a shepherd would. Three times Jesus repeats this command, and we immediately recognize, of course, and we think about Jesus' threefold denial of Jesus and how Jesus was replacing that denial with, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, Peter? But it's also repeated here three times because of the absolutely crucial truth that this is the job of a pastor to shepherd the flock. The primary and the continuous job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. Now, we're speaking literally about sheep now and shepherds. Shepherds tell us that sheep cannot find good pastures on their own. You you can't just tell the sheep, go find food. They're not very good at it. They can't tell the difference very well between edible, healthy food and poisonous weeds. They'll just eat whatever they find on the ground. They'll overgraze a field if you don't move them. If you don't keep them moving in in different parts of a field, they'll just overgraze until there's nothing left but sand and dirt and dust on the ground. They'll just strip it bare. And so, they're not very good at feeding if left to themselves. And it's a great picture of the common mistakes that we all can make if we're not being led to be feeding properly on God's Word. We're unable to find good fields on our own. Sometimes we consume poisonous teaching. We don't even know that it's bad for us, that it's, it's not the right kinds of teaching and not based on the Scriptures. And sometimes we overemphasize certain Scriptures, certain teachings, and, and we, we overgraze on it. We just strip it bare, and, and we just wonder, why, why can't I grow? You know, I, I only want to hear about end times stuff. That's all I want. I want to overgraze and overgraze on it. Or, or I only want to talk about love and positive and never negative or judgment. You know, I, I want to overgraze on certain things. So, so the shepherd is constantly and continually concerned about feeding the sheep with all that God has given us. The, the good, the, the not so fun, <laughs> the hard, the easy, all of the things that God's given us. And that's the command here, shepherd the flock of God. But what are we feeding them? Well, we're, we're feeding the, the whole counsel of the Word of God. Peter's already mentioned in chapter 1 that the, the way that we are born again, the way that we become born again is by the living and abiding Word of God. Because everything else is going to pass away. Everything else will fall away. But the Word of the Lord endures for how long? Forever. Amen. Not only that, but in all of the instructions that Peter gives in this letter, he just saturates this Scripture with other Scripture. We may not call it out every time, but Peter quotes or alludes to Old Testament Scripture at least 30 different verses, at least 30 different Old Testament verses throughout 1 Peter that he either alludes to or quotes. Not to mention the fact that this letter that Peter is writing is Scripture itself, right? This is God's Word. And so he's telling us, feed, this, feed on this. And that's why Paul charges Timothy before God and before Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, preach the Word. Don't give whatever works. Don't give whatever is easy. Don't give just anything anybody wants to hear. Give them what they need to hear, the Word of God. That's what we hunger for. That's what we are after. The Word of God is both the pure spiritual milk for the young and the meat for the mature. It's the bread that we need for life, yet it's sweeter than honey. These are some of the ways that God describes His Word to us, the meat and the milk and the bread and the honey. So feed the flock of God with the Word of God. 
But it's not just feeding. That's the primary and continual job for pastors, for shepherds, for elders. But the shepherd is also an overseer, exercising oversight in verse 2, and it's a constant, continuous care. The word means to closely watch. When, if I'm looking at you like this, I'm not angry at you. I'm closely watching you. No, <laughs> that's the idea, right? I mean, just, why is he looking at me that way? Well, he, he loves you. He's watching over you. <laughs> He's always ready to protect the flock when needed. There are always predators present that the shepherd watches for and defends the flock against. The shepherd is always watching and alert. The shepherd also guides the sheep away from danger like cliffs. Or water, even good things like water can move too quickly and the sheep can stick his face down in the water to drink and drown by the water that that the sheep needs. So the shepherd is always watching for good things that are happening too much and and for bad things that might cause the sheep danger. The, The shepherd helps the sheep when they're sick or injured and spends his time around them to be able to tell the difference because sheep can't come up and say, I think I have a fever, can you help me out? So they're they're watching the sheep, and they're with the sheep and around the sheep. And sheep need to be sheared at least annually, or they'll be overcome with wool. And that's not something that we'll try to connect with us. Like, you know, the shepherd, the pastor should be coming around shearing us. We're not going to say anything like that. But that's how involved a shepherd of physical, literal sheep is, because there's so much for shepherds to do in, in, in feeding and watering and protecting and guiding and helping and healing and feeding and so much care. And those jobs are the perfect metaphor for shepherds of God's flock. You say, well, that's a little bit strongly stated, a a perfect metaphor, don't you think? Well, I would think that, except that God chose that as the metaphor. Uh, So it is the perfect metaphor. He uses it repeatedly throughout Scripture. We've talked about it before. We even even were talking about it Wednesday night in mid-high student ministries. Um, Every one of us is messy. Every one of us is messy like a sheep. We, we, we tend to get used to our own messiness and think it's really not that bad, but we sin, we mess up, we wander off, we overgraze, we endanger ourselves and others with wrong teachings. We all need help and guidance, encouragement, and hope and protection and feeding at times. We all need that. So to help one another to get up when we've fallen. To love and care for the flock of God. That, that's why we have one another, and that's why we have pastors to make sure that that's happening, to make sure that people are caring for others, not to make us feel better about sinning or make us feel better about wandering off and forget about all that, you know, serious stuff. Um, Peter says good pastors are those who are pastoring, helping us through times when we mess up or helping us when we're suffering for Jesus' name and encouraging us and growing us in our ministries and, and all of the persecution that will come for us. You remember Ephesians 4, that this is why we have pastors, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ. And, and there can be an entire series of messages <laughs> filling in a lot of those details, what that looks like, but for the sake of continuing in our passage, we're going to keep moving Two things to quickly note about this command before we continue. First, Peter reminds us whose flock this is. He says, shepherd the flock of God. Church, we belong to God. We don't belong to any man or any group of men. No pastor owns the church. Throughout the Old Testament, God was the shepherd of his own people. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus is our shepherd. 
We sang about him this morning as our shepherd, and, and we see it throughout the New Testament. He is the good shepherd, and he is the great shepherd. Peter calls him the chief shepherd here. The rest of these shepherds, the rest of these pastors uh, in churches are under shepherds. But we're serving the great shepherd, Jesus. So, if you're looking at a pastor, you're trying to determine whether a pastor is any good and whether it's a pastor you should follow, um, compare the pastor to Jesus if you want to know whether he's doing a good job. Just remember that the pastors are not Jesus and they will fall infinitely short. <laughs> but if that's what they're striving for, that will be a better pastor than one who ignores everything that he has said and goes his own way. By the way, Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never fail you. So he is, that's why he gets to be the chief shepherd. He gets to be the one in charge. But pastors, remember that this flock is God's flock, not ours. Secondly, Peter says, it's the flock of God that is among you. The one that you're with, the one that's near you. And that should blow out of the water any idea that a pastor is like a CEO of a corporation. Right, that he sits up in his office and he, he kind of overlooks when he feels like it, but otherwise nobody knows who he is and, and nobody knows him and he doesn't know anybody. The, the pastor shepherd needs to be among the flock with the sheep. And the pastors need to tend to and care for the flock that is among you. You see, pastor is not this um, rank that you attain to in the church and that you get to carry around with you throughout the world. So you get to be in charge of any Christian <laughs> anywhere. Um, you have a duty here with these sheep, th this flock that's among you, not the one that you wish you had, and that goes both ways, right? Not the pastors you wish you had, you know, I wish this pastor was a little bit better at this or that or, or whatever. If, if the pastor is, is doing what God has said he's supposed to be doing, um, that brings encouragement and joy. And, and for the pastor, if the flock is, is doing what the flock is supposed to do, that brings joy, not what somebody else's flock is doing. So there's no discontentment is what we're getting at, right? There's no, there's no I wish I this, I, I wish that, the flock that is among you. If people can come up with ways to draw in crowds of people, but if they're doing it based on worldly ideas of manipulation or charisma or appealing to what they want, that's not what God's after for pastors or for churches. Are they faithful in what God has given them to do and as God blesses that work, as he brings the flock, that's when God is glorified. That's when he is happy with the pastors and with the people in the church. So pastors need to pastor, feeding always, guiding, protecting when needing, always watching, always depending on the chief shepherd for instructions on, how, on what he should be doing. But Peter gives us three areas of danger for pastors, for shepherds, elders, overseers, that they can fall into, that they need to watch out for. Why? Because the pastors are still sheep themselves, <laughs> right? God doesn't say, congratulations, you've, you've been promoted from sheep to person and now you're a shepherd. No, he, he gives us as sheep a task that goes against our very nature as sheep, which is just to follow around. <laughs> uh, but as God enables and empowers, that's when he is able to do what he's been called to do. Here's what to watch for. Even if a pastor seems to be doing well in, in feeding the flock, in teaching and caring for the flock, there's more to it even than being faithful in what he's said to do. 
It's also how he does it, which reveals why he does it. Three areas of danger. If you see these three tendencies, the pastor or pastors in the church need to be confronted. Now, there's protection for pastors that, that he's not, the pastors aren't always dealing with one person that comes and I didn't like the way he said this or I didn't, I, you know, I want to see more of that. There, there are protections for them, um, but watch for these two. The what, the when, and the where we've already covered. What is it that we're talking about shepherding? When are they shepherding always? Where are they shepherding? The flock that's among you. But these three key in on who and why and how. Of pastors. So A, the first danger, A, it's the draw of a pastor, verse 2. The draw of a pastor. Who is, who is a pastor? The first qualification in both of the lists of qualifications that we have in the New Testament begin with a desire to be a pastor. What is it that draws the pastor to this duty, this work of being a pastor? Is it someone who realizes there's a need and there's nobody else stepping up, so I guess I better do it? Is that what draws a pastor in? No, Peter says not under compulsion. <laughs> not because you think it has to get done, so you're the guy to do it. You're the stucky. When someone does something because they recognize it has to get done and nobody else is going to do it, the results are not what pleases God and what glorifies Him. That's not the kind of work that He blesses. When we serve under compulsion rather than willingly, it can lead to indifference, for one thing, Right? Nobody else is doing it. If somebody else wants to do it better, let them, <laughs> right? I'm the only one stepping up here. I'm just doing it because it has to get done. That's the wrong attitude for anything that we do before God, especially serving as a shepherd or a pastor. It can lead to indifference. It can lead to laziness. You know, God should just be happy I'm doing anything. You know, at least I'm doing something. <laughs> no one else is stepping up. Listen, if that's true, that nobody else is stepping up into a ministry, either God isn't bringing anyone in which case that ministry needs to go away. Or God is calling someone who's just not responding because they're being disobedient to God and you just need to be patient a little bit longer. But a pastor, anybody, should serve the Lord not under compulsion but willingly. But particularly, this shepherd needs to feel the irresistible call of God on his life to do this. It should be his desire and aim to serve this way. You may have read through the prophet Jeremiah and what he said in chapter 20 of, of his prophecy, verses 7 through 9, he was prophesying to God's people. He was telling them that, listen, you need to repent. You've got to turn away from your sin because judgment is coming. And the way that they responded was by hating Jeremiah and, and persecuting him for that message. And if they didn't repent, God was going to send the Babylonians to conquer them, but they don't want to listen to that. So Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20, he said, the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. People hate me because I keep giving them God's word. He says, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, if I just decided I'm just going to not give the message anymore, <laughs> there's a lot easier ways to live life than be hated all the time because I'm giving God's message. He says, if I said that, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I have to give this message. Even if it causes me pain, even if it causes everybody to hate me because of this message, I have to give it. I can't hold it back, and I must never change it, right? That's what Jeremiah says. That, that's what it should be like for the pastor. I've got this word, and, and I can't hold it in. It's like a fire within me in my bones. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It becomes a necessity from within. The pastor who wants to do this faithfully, it becomes a necessity, not from outside, not compulsion being forced upon him, but from within. That's when it's necessary and willing, not forced. It leads to diligence rather than indifference or laziness. It's a motivated shepherd rather than a forced or manipulated shepherd. Do you want to be a pastor? Men, have you thought about being a pastor before? What is it that moves you? Do you move? (laughs) Are you moved by anything? What is it that moves you? 2 Corinthians 5 says it is the love of Christ that compels us, that pushes and pulls (laughs) and brings us along. The The same word, this compulsion word, the same word is used in 2 Corinthians 9, of giving in the church. Don't give under compulsion. God doesn't want anything to, that any of us do to be done because, well, I'm forced into it. You know, I'm com- I, under compulsion, I feel like I'm forced. It's an, it's an act of worship that you freely give to God, whether it's money or your time or your energies. He loves the cheerful giver. This service is to be free and joyful response to God's love. But it is a duty, and it's done before God. There should be a little bit of reluctance in this because there is a high calling here. There's a lot of work, and there are unreachable qualifications. Any pastor that says, I meet the qualifications in in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, um, that's automatically something to be wary of. None of us can completely meet all of those qualifications. But it becomes willing when you see the worthiness of God, when you love His people as, as He loved them the best that you can. You see the worthiness of God of anything and everything that you could give Him, and that motivates you to willingly serve in this way. Willingly is a deliberate intention, spontaneously, voluntarily, as God would have you serve. You know, the great shepherd is Jesus Himself, as Jesus served as the, as the, as the shepherd. He's the supervisor, the performance evaluator, the supervisor, the boss, Right? We have to do it His way. Do it like Jesus did it. And that's in John 10. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but it's in your notes. John 10, where Jesus explains, I'm the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. I love them. I lay down my life for them. I protect them. And He says, nobody makes me do this. I do this of my own accord. That's how the chief shepherd, that's how the great shepherd loves His people. That's who shepherds are, following the chief shepherd. So shepherding and exercising oversight is what you can give, not what you can get, right? Um, And it's not because of of a compulsory, mandatory requirement that's laid out there and you decide to fill it. It's the willingness and the desire to serve in that way. So that's the first danger to watch out for, serving under compulsion. B, the next area of danger is the desire of a pastor from verse 2. The desire of a pastor. Why does he want to do all this work? Is it motivated by shameful gain, shamefully greedy? Is it looking for material gain or profit? You know, this is the guy that's only in it for the money. Maybe he finds this work easier than the back-breaking work outside. <laughs> he thinks this is going to be easier money than working hard or difficult labor inside in an office. So he said, I'll I'll become a pastor for the easy money. 
And maybe he thinks he can manipulate people into giving more and more money. He's, more, he's a convincing person. He'll, he'll get them to give more so he can get more and have a more comfortable lifestyle or even become rich. The implication here is that by this time, people had started paying pastors for their work. And the reason that they did that is because it allowed those pastors to spend more time preparing to feed the flock and, and counseling and, and discipling and shepherding. But the, the money isn't to be the goal for the pastor, the why he does what he does. The pastors should never be motivated by that. There are repeated warnings throughout the New Testament about pastors, teachers becoming greedy for money because the money is meant to allow them to provide for themselves and their families while they do the work that they're called to. But this is the sad part. When people are motivated by money, they can work really hard, right? People that are motivated to get rich will work very hard and, and very long hours. Throughout history, there have been swindlers and cons and thieves playing on people's love of money and motivating them to work really hard. But pastors who have money as their motive often work very hard also, at times harder than those pastors who are not motivated by money. So Peter says shameful gain shouldn't be the desire of the pastor, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't be eager for his work. He says in verse 2 here, um, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, still eagerly, right? I mean, you're not going to get rich off of it. You shouldn't be getting rich off of this, but you should still be working and serving in this way eagerly. He shouldn't be afraid of working hard, you know, just, just because they're not paying me enough. Now, that is a persistent and legitimate problem in many churches. Many churches are not paying their pastors a full-time salary that's enough to support them. They're working them to exhaustion in ministry, and sometimes they have to go get a second job just to provide for their family, and, and that is a real problem. But if a pastor is being paid to do the work of ministry, he should be just as eager to do that ministry as if he were getting rich off of it. Even if he's not, he shouldn't be. Just because you're not going to be wealthy doesn't mean that you should be giving less of yourself as a pastor. Eagerly means promptly, it means cheerfully, it means heartily for the Lord. Why should the greedy pastors work so hard, right? Why should they be so motivated? Those who love God and want to serve Him and, and His people should be just as motivated, if not more motivated, to serve. Serving God's flock for His glory brings eternal rewards, which should bring eagerness even more than serving for money would. So that's the draw to watch for and the desire to watch for in a pastor. There's a third area of danger for pastors to watch for and for us to watch for in our pastors, and that is C in our notes, the drive of a pastor, verse 3. The drive. How does he move and work in his ministry? What is the method he uses for shepherding and overseeing as a pastor? Does he take a page out of the world's book of ideas for leadership and become domineering? You know, people a lot of times don't like that type of leader. But there is a certain amount of respect for that because the most powerful leaders in history, politically, militarily, economically, commercially, have been autocratic, domineering leaders, right? I know where I'm going, I'm going to get there, and you better get in line or get out of my way, right? No matter how successful that is in the world, it is not to be found in the church. It might bring growth in numbers of people or numbers of dollars, but it's expressly forbidden here for pastors to act that way, to be that way. Those 
traits of influence and power can exude confidence and inspire others to follow. But that kind of leadership can be efficient in making decisions and swift follow-through, but it can be the kind of leadership that just steamrolls over people, leaves a wake of pain and hurt and shame, and it drives people away from the Lord rather than to Him. So look at how a pastor shepherds and how he oversees the flock, how the pastors in the church are doing that. This phrase here that Peter uses, in your charge, it's a good translation. It helps us out because God has placed these people, this flock, in your charge. The word charge originally meant the lot, when they would cast lots. They would almost like dice, right? You throw them and see what happens. That's your lot. That's your charge. That's what you have to to deal with, to live with, to work with. And so this charge is the flock that God has given you, pastors, God has brought them to you, and He's determined who is part of this flock. That's what Peter's talking about, who this flock is. That's who the Lord has brought in. They're under your charge not to rule over, not to domineer over, not to take advantage of, not to gather them to yourself through your own charisma and strategies. This is the flock of God under your charge for you to watch over, for you to shepherd, for you to care for and love and feed and protect. Pastors are overseers, not taskmasters, not domineering leaders. Is there a replacement then? Instead of a domineering, manipulative, controlling kind of leader, is there, is there something we should replace that with? Yes, God has in mind for the leaders of His people to be examples. Examples rather than force or manipulation. Verse 3 says, being examples to the flock. Again, rather than a CEO who has no idea who any of the people are, rather than, than an executive who has no idea what life is like down there in the trenches, rather than a dictator who just tells everyone else what to do but doesn't do it himself, a faithful shepherd leads by example. This word example is tupas. It means model or pattern. Um, you know, we might use the word Xerox, like a Xerox copy, <laughs> You're going to become like your pastors if you're under their care for very long. So you need to make sure they're the kind of men that you want to become like. This is God's idea for what happens in ministry. You know, for for shepherds, going to seminary does not do this for you. It doesn't make you an example. Being a good leader in the secular world does not help you become a good example for God's people to be a shepherd for His people. As you follow Jesus, you will be setting the example God wants, pastors, specifically the example of humility and service that he's discussing here in these verses. You know, it's not like the mechanic that has three cars broken at home and has no idea how to fix them that wants to work on your car, right? That, that's not a good example of, of somebody that knows what they're doing and knows how to, knows how to help. He's not like the doctor who's smoking and overweight telling you, you need to stop smoking and get in, in shape, right? He's working alongside. He's serving with the flock, among the flock, using his gift or gifts like everybody else is supposed to be doing, setting the example, following the example, the the great shepherd. So, God's leaders for his flock are examples, not dominant authoritarians. Far from perfect examples, again, please don't hold your pastors up to a perfect example, (laughs) That's what he's striving after. That's what all of the pastors of the church are striving after. 
But that's more important, the, the striving after his perfect example while not domineering over people. Pastors can't do all the work themselves, and they shouldn't. That's why we're all being equipped for ministry, right? But that doesn't mean that they stop doing ministry, that pastors suddenly just stop serving because other people are. The reason for this, this came to me this week, and I was so grateful for this. The reason that God's flock doesn't need a man to be at the top doesn't need a man to be the force behind everything is because we already have a force and a man who is also God who is over everything here, everything in the church. We already have our perfect Lord Jesus himself. So we don't look for the pastors to replace the pastor, the shepherd. God's leaders in his churches may not be very good leaders in commerce or military or government, but they are good, faithful leaders when they lead by example because their leadership comes from the Word of God, not a vision or a goal that he comes up with, not soapbox issues that he always talks about. You know, he's always running off about this or always talking about that. Rather than pushing his own agendas, he pushes God's agenda from his Word. Now, those are three areas of danger to watch for in evaluating a pastor. Those are how to avoid pitfalls for good pastors, but there's a reward coming for this work only as we follow this chief shepherd. The chief shepherd directs the activities of the other, of the other shepherds, the other pastors, and if the shepherds are not following the chief shepherd and doing his will, there will be trouble at the end because he says when he appears, this is as a second time. You remember when Jesus came the first time, he came as the Lamb of God. When he comes again, he's coming back as the chief shepherd. And, and before he came as one of us to redeem us, then he will come as the powerful one to bring us home. If we're doing what he's told us to do, there's promise rather than trouble. Uh, pastors will receive a crown here, it says. A crown or, is a wreath um, that was given for success as a prize for performance. That, that's the word that Peter's using here. It's usually made of leaves and flowers which fade away over time. But this reward is unfading, Peter says. It doesn't lose its pristine character. It's the same word used in chapter 1 of our unfading inheritance. It's a crown of glory, not a crown of flesh. So it will never fade. It will never fall apart. So don't be greedy for money or power, but do look forward to the reward that is coming. The crown's significance is that it was a crown of victory. Victory in Jesus, not in your own strength, not in your own power, not because of anything that you are or that you did, but because of what Jesus did in you. Now, people debate, is this the same crown that all of us get? We all get to heaven? We all get that crown of glory? Could be. Could be a different one. Regardless, none of us is ever going to be disappointed when we get there. <laughs> There's nothing to, to be disappointed about when we get there. We'll be focused on Him. But the idea here is that pastors need to pastor. They shepherd by feeding the flock and caring for them and guiding them, protecting them, and helping with healing and more. They don't serve with compulsion. They don't serve to be gaining shamefully or by being domineering. They serve as God would have them serve as examples for His glory. And there is a reward at the end later on, but not now. What about the rest of us? What's our responsibility? If, we, if we've got pastors like that that are striving for that, 
that's their goal, that's who they are and what they are and, and what they're doing and why they're doing it. If I find them like that, then what should I do? Well, number two in our notes in verse five, what Peter says is that the people need to submit. The people submit. Peter says, likewise here, he did that earlier in the letter, he's continuing the flow of thought. In the church, here's what pastors do, here's what the rest of us do. The pastors have a lot more responsibility, so he gives them a lot of verses. The one responsibility for the rest of us is to submit. Now, as we've seen in this letter, this is a common command. We submit to God in all things, in all ways, all the time, every time, without question. Uh, he places the government over us, and we submit to the government, right? All of us do. Um, we don't submit when the government tries to replace God. As long as they serve within their realm, we submit to them. We submit to our bosses at work in First Peter. Wives submit to their husbands in First Peter. And here, all of us submit to the elders. It's a common command, but it's not a very well-liked command for us, is it? It goes against our notion of freedom and liberty and individual. But this is God's plan for order and stability in His church. So because of this command for us to submit to the elders or pastors, we need to be careful about which pastors we arrange ourselves under, submit to, that's the word, that's what it means, right? Arrange ourselves under for spiritual direction, for oversight, for shepherding kind of care. But this is interesting for us in our culture. It hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been that way that the sheep get to choose their shepherds, (laughs) That's what we have in our culture. You know, if you don't like the way the pastors do this or don't do that or say this or don't say that, well, I'll just go to the next church down the road. I'll find some other pastors, right? I, I like this food better than that food. I like that care better than, that care, than this care, whatever it is. But think about how God's going to hold pastors accountable for what he says they should be doing. If he's allowing us to choose our shepherds, isn't he going to be holding us accountable for which shepherds we chose? So we need to be evaluating them the way God will, and we need to keep that in mind, that if, if God's given us that freedom and that responsibility, He's going to hold us accountable for how we did that. Now, why are we saying this applies to all of us when Peter addresses the younger, he says? Well, the word younger here can mean recent or newer, you know, younger in the faith or more recent. It's the, it's the word Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3 that says a pastor should not be a recent convert new to the faith, that those who are older in the faith may become pastors if they're evaluated against the qualifications, but even if a younger man, uh, younger in the faith, seems to meet the qualifications, he shouldn't even be considered if, he hasn't, if he's a recent convert because of the propensity to be puffed up with pride as he learns and grows instead of serving. So Peter could be saying that here, that the, the elders versus the youngers, the elders in the faith versus those who are more recent in the faith, or he, he's... Many, other believe, many others believe that what Peter's saying here is that, that he's directing this to everybody, but he's explicitly mentioning the youngers because the younger people often need the reminder to submit to those who are over you. But we're including everybody here because the underlying assumption, if we think about it, the elders here, it's plural again, but they're all submitting, they're, I mean, they're all operating as one. They're all unanimous, and so they must be submitting to one another. They operate... Um, as one in unanimity, they function as a group, not as individuals. So there must be a submitting to one another among the elders as well as all submitting. If man's nature and history has taught us anything, it's that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And so th- no man is over all. There, there's a submitting of the elders to one another. 
But here's the appeal that we make to you, brother and sister. If you're going to arrange yourself this way, arrange yourself under the, the elders, arrange yourself that way. Be, be open and honest with your pastors. Allow the pastors to care for you because we can't see your heart. We can't see what you're thinking and, and what's, what's happening in your life. If you're hurting, you need comfort or you need wisdom or help, please let us know, right? There are some things we can't help with, <laughs> But there are some things, many things that we can't help with that we can give wisdom, we can give encouragement, we can give direction. As the Lord provides, there are some things we shouldn't, you know, we're not going to tell you which car to buy, which house to live in, what kind of clothes to wear. We're not going to run your life. That's not what, in fact, he says, don't be that way, right? But there are many things that pastors should be helping with that we can't if you don't allow us to help you with them. The words from Hebrews 13 help to explain this a little bit since we're out of time The writer of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they deserve it? No. Because they've earned it? No. Because they're better than you? No. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's what God says for all of us. There are pastors who are praying for you watching over you, who are loving you and, and want to care for you in, in ways that would make you know that, you can, that they care for you, that we care for you, and, and that we're going to give an account to God for how we did that and if we did that. So in, order, in God's order for the church, pastors pastor and people submit, and that, help us, that helps us to function as God designed. As we're struggling in life, everyday life, the Christian life, we're all here to help one another. Not just pastors helping, but all of us, but, but the pastors are going to have to give an account for if that happened and how that happened. So allow us to serve you in those ways. That's, that's why we're here. That's, what we, that's the joy of ministry is having that time being led by the Lord to be able to help and care for and love, feed and shepherd and guide. Well, there was a, a third instruction here that, um, that Peter gives that we need to be doing in the church. We need to be all about the pastors pastoring, all of us submitting. And then number three, all need to be clothed with humility. But that's all we're going to say about that verse, <laughs> the rest of the verse five there for this morning, because we're going to get more into humility uh, next week, Lord willing. Humility is um, a missing attribute for, for many people, uh, particularly in our culture. So Peter has something to say to that. Uh, to us about that. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, again next week. But our application, what do, we, what do we take from here? Well, first in your application, in your notes, is to be selective in who your pastors are. You say, why are you, why are you telling me? Shouldn't you be encouraging people to stay here? Well, <laughs> if you're not seeing this in your pastors, don't stay, right? You won't always get to choose who your pastors are, but here you get to do that, so, so do it carefully. They're supposed to be watching over your souls. You know, how do you choose people to help you in your life if your car is broken? Do you, do you pick some random person? Do you pick some person who can talk really well and motivates you and makes you feel good? Hey, that guy can fix my car. <laughs> no. This is your soul, right? Make sure that your soul is looked after. Jesus, our great shepherd, is doing that, but he's given us some other people on earth who are meant to be uh, doing that in, in tangible ways. Be just as careful, even more careful about who you entrust your soul to. Pastors, be selective in who you serve with, right? 
So let's, let's watch for that. Let, let's take this, these, these instructions uh, seriously from the Lord and, and understand this is a joy for us to have this, and, and this is a blessing that God provides this, but let's make sure that we do it as He says. Uh, second in our application, serve in the way you have been gifted. Serve in the way you've been gifted, whether that's pastor or, or some other way of serving, some, uh, a speaking gift, a serving gift, whatever it is. Pastors have a lot of responsibility in, in these verses and others. Uh, but think about whether you're doing what God has for you, w- whether you're taking your responsibilities seriously or, or instead replacing God's ideas with your own ideas. Well, I, you know, I think church should be where I get to come and sit and be fed, and that's all. Think about the way that you need to be serving and, and be faithful with what God has. Finally, submit in humility to one another, to, to, to God first, to, to His people. Submit in humility. All Allow us to serve you and to lead you in these ways. And pastors will need to remain humble as well. That's why, again, there's a plurality of them. There's not just one man in charge. The man Jesus is in charge. So we submit to him in humility. We submit to him in thankfulness. That's when he's glorified. That's when he has his work done in the church. Father, thank you again, Lord, for your word Lord, I pray that you would overcome any stammering or stuttering from me. Lord, I pray that you would overcome and correct anything inaccurate that I've said. Or, Lord, there's so much here and so much that could be said and, and probably should have been said. Lord, I pray that your people would turn to you and to feed on your word. God, that the, the pastors here at Canyon would continually point your people to your word. Lord, that no one would depend on us as Savior or as Lord. There already is a Savior and Lord. He's perfect. He's our chief shepherd. Lord, we, pastors at Canyon, Lord, desire, yearn to follow him. God, we, we desire to love your people as you've loved them, to lay down our lives for them as Jesus did, if that's what you call us to. God, you haven't yet. So, Lord, we pray that as we continue to live, that we would all be serving the way you've called us to serve. Lord, that we would be loving you above ourselves, that we'd be loving others above ourselves, Father, that you would enable and empower through your Holy Spirit ministry in this church. God, ministry that doesn't bring glory to God, Lord, that doesn't bring um, money or power or or anything that, that, uh, that would detract from your message. God, I pray that it would be ministry in your church that would, that would care for one another here, and Lord, that would care for the people outside of here, that we would be reaching out and sharing this gospel, this good news, truth and love in holiness. Father, we praise you for this. We thank you for this work. And God, all of the praise and the glory and the credit goes to you now and forever. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will do that perfectly without any more sin or weakness or um, anything holding us back, Father. Thank you for using us, Lord. We don't understand how sovereign God, the sovereign, powerful God would use weak people like us, but we praise you for that. Thank you that you allow us to be part of it. We pray that you would be exalted, worshiped, glorified in all that we do and say. In his name we pray, amen.